Live from the basement of Voodoo Sound, it's time to get your mojo working. I got my mojo working, but it just won't work on you. Take the next 40 odd minutes to get your hands on some tips and tools that will get you working at your best in both your business and your personal life. Hey everybody and welcome to the Mojo Radio Show. Welcome on board the bus, the big red bus we call the Mojo Radio Show, heading due north into Christmas 2017. Nice to have you here. If you're new to the show, what do we do here? We just find interesting people that we think have their mojo working in or out of work. We have a chat, steal their ideas, something that we can take away to apply to our own worlds to help our families, maybe help a friend, help ourselves, feel better, get the energy working and just get everything in our mojo world rolling. As we head into Christmas, we've got a great lineup of guests coming up and today is no exception. Uh, Robo, before we start the show, there is there is some sound. I'm not sure where it's coming from, but I'm getting something through my headphones. Yeah, I'm working on something. Let, let's get through the interview and I'll uh, when we get out the other end, I'll, um, it's a bit of a surprise actually. So I'll, I'll, I'll tell you about it after the interview. The Mojo Radio Show. So, folks, this week's guest came to me via a blog that I read, and Taylor Pearson wrote a book called The End of Jobs. Now, this is an area that I have been very curious about for some time now. I moved myself into WeWork in George Street in Sydney. I've been following the WeWork phenomenon. Now, as a business, we're odd billion dollars and less than 10 years old. The show's been following the digital nomad. We've talked to different entrepreneurs and... This guy is a specialist. He's, he's written this book called The End of Jobs, which is what does the work of the future look like? With all these things that are going on, what does the world of an entrepreneur look like? He's done hundreds of interviews all over the world from LA, Vietnam, Brazil to New York to talk to all these different people in different fields to say, what does work going into the future look like when we're looking for more freedom, more meaning, but we still want to make some cash? And I wrote to Tata and said, mate, this is a topic we'd love to dig into with you. And he very kindly has given us some time today. Taylor, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show, mate. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. It's, uh, it's our pleasure. Now, just to kick us off, when people ask you what you do, how do you like to reply? Hey, my my immediate thought is always that like scene from Office Space where they've got the, the guy like cornered in a room. Like, what is it that you say that you do? <laughs> like, I, sort of, I sort of feel like that guy. Um, yeah, I guess my, my typical answer, I just say I'm a writer in terms of, you know, how I spend my time and, and maybe how I self-identify. I, I spend most of my time um, writing and researching and then kind of everything else I do grows out of that. Um, writing and researching process. And I'm thinking that people would, the first question would be, oh, what do you write? You've done a book. And when you talk about your writing and kind of your specialty, Taylor, tell me, what what's the snapshot of what you're seeing that's changing about the nature of the term work today? And what impact is that likely to have on us? Yeah, so uh, obviously, as you mentioned, one of the themes that's been really interesting to me is sort of how work is changing and how work is evolving. And I think the big story there, from my perspective, uh, is if you look back at the history of work, uh, I would say we've kind of gone through uh, three big phases in terms of how work is organized and we're 
uh, we're moving between kind of the third and the fourth phase. So the first phase was sort of agricultural, where you had a society organized by you know, kings or feudal lords, uh, and everyone was tied to the land and the source of wealth and the source of income and and work was very much tied to the land. Uh, we shifted into an industrial phase, sort of in the late uh, 19th century, and then throughout the 20th century in the developing world, uh, where work shifted increasingly to be uh, based on manufacturing, based on uh, mass production. And then sort of starting in the developed world in the mid-20th century, uh, we shifted towards this model of knowledge work, where uh, work was organized by these large multinational corporations um, because they're basically you know, the first institutions in our private institutions in history where they could really engage in uh, global commerce. And the benefits of that you know, were enormous to kind of link up uh, the globe and the benefits from trade and production that came from that. And so people kind of came to work and do this sort of knowledge work in these large uh, multinational corporations. And I think what we're seeing now is this shift from what I would call knowledge work to entrepreneurial work, where uh, it's not so much kind of just the moving around of the bits, but uh, thinking about how to uh, create new and interesting things. So I think that the kind of automation we saw happen uh, really starting like in earnest in the 90s, probably in the U.S., of blue collar or uh, kind of typical industrial work being moved overseas and increasingly being automated. I think we're starting to see that happen to, you know, what you might call like white collar knowledge work. And then increasingly the boundaries and um, the returns to effort, the returns to um, work are moving towards the sort of more entrepreneurial uh, type of work. It's a funny term though, Taylor, because the, I'm, I, I'm curious to know what the interpretation of being an entrepreneur means today, because it seems what it used to mean is different to what it means today, only because that term seems to have become very popular. Like it seems to be the go-to term, I become an entrepreneur. What, what is that today and how do you see it? Yeah, I think, I think whenever you go through these sorts of transitions, the semantics are very difficult, right? And if you're, you know, you imagine trying to explain to, uh, you know, not going to uh, Nebraska in 1900 and trying to explain to a farmer what, uh, you know, what, it like, what, what it's like to work at IBM in 1950. It's like, well, you know, you put on this white shirt and, you, you know, you go sit in this big building and uh, you type on this thing called a computer, and you got to explain to them what a keyboard is. And so I, th- I think a lot of the difficulty is uh, is semantic in that way. You know, you're trying to you're trying to fit the new paradigm in the old paradigm, um, and it, it all you know it fits in, in only a very clumsy way. I think when I use the term, um, what I mean it is you know, there's uh, knowledge work in the sense of the task has been clearly defined defined for the individual and, and the role of the individual is just to uh, complete the task. And entrepreneurship for me is much more uh, identifying what it is that's worth doing. It's the act of looking at a system and seeing it in a new way and repurposing kind of those existing assets or those existing components in a new and more productive way than they're being used right now. And I think, yeah, that, that's confined not just to uh, say starting a business, but also, you know, within a particular job, within how people approach their life, I think it's more of a, a worldview uh, or a perspective than it is a profession. See, I think that's the distinction, isn't it? Like what you just said then is that 
you can, it's it's a it's a mindset or it's a means of looking for opportunities as opposed to I think some people would think that entrepreneur is the guy that just sees something and, and does a startup. The entrepreneur is the person who starts a new business. Is that kind of what you mean? Yeah, it is. Like I think the popular conception, and this is very much like my conception of it uh, when I was growing up is, you know, you think of like the person on the cover of Forbes or you think of Bill Gates, you have that kind of archetype of, you know, the person that starts a very, very large uh, business. And I think the term, at least as I'm using it, can be applied much more to, yeah, mindset, a way of seeing the world than it is to, you know, whether, you know, you have a private entity which you're running or you're working in this or that job or, or, you know, this or that nonprofit or whatever it is. There's someone listening right now who's stuck, and I suspect there are a lot of us stuck, and we know we want something more. We know we want something different. We're in a position or a job that is not giving us what we want or what we think we're capable of, they have read about your stuff or are listening to us talk about the future of jobs. If that person did want to make a a change and did want to get on board with the stuff you're talking about, what would you say is the most important first question they need to ask themselves? Hello? Yeah, I'm thinking. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, can I leave that in? That's, that's that is awesome. A, that is absolute gold. <laughs> you can. I, was, I try not to stutter. If I don't know what I'm going to say, I try not to stutter and say, um, I just kind of pause and you, you got me on a long pause there. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, but you do understand that silence makes audio engineers very nervous. <laughs> uh, I, I can understand that, yeah. <laughs> I, was, I wasn't sure how much y'all were going to edit it. Um, <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Oh, that's I'll great. edit it, I mean, but that's gold. staying in. It's, a, it's actually okay. gold, Taylor. <laughs> you, stump, you stumped me. It was hard questions. Um. <laughs> You know, I think part of it is, I'm not sure I have a succinct answer. I think part of it is sort of asking or starting to identify um, what it is they they really care about. I think one of the things many people find when they start doing, you know, more entrepreneurial type work is it's really, uh, the, the challenging part is not, you know, the intellectual or even just... Um, you know, the hours or the, the, the hard work in the sense we typically think of hard work. It's the, what I would call like the emotional work or, um, you know, almost like the courage aspect of it, that it's finding something that you're willing to put your name on and you're willing to put your face on and say, you know, I am, I'm doing this and I think this is important. And, uh, you know, you have to go out and say that to many, many people knowing that, most people aren't going to be interested, right? Nothing is for everyone. Uh, nothing appeals to everyone. And I think that runs very counter to uh, just our fundamental nature as humans, right? You think about us as a species that evolved in these small tribes uh, where belongingness and being accepted was uh, you know, not just a nice to have, but it was a survival skill, right? You know, you're one of uh, 50 people in a tribe and the leader decides he doesn't like you and kicks you out of the tribe. Uh, then you die, you know, you're, you're left alone and you die without the support structure of the group around you. And so I think one of the really challenging aspects is finding something you care enough about to be willing to take that 
emotional risk of um, saying that, you know, this is me, this is what I'm doing, and understanding that for most people, you know, just even, you know, the iPhone, which is probably the most successful product in history, uh, you know, is only owned by something like 15% of smartphone owners, which itself is a huge market. You know, most people don't like iPhones or don't want an iPhone. Um, and so I think that that kind of emotional aspect and identifying what it is that matters to you, uh, and obviously that's a, an ongoing question that's never really solved, and you, you, know, you don't magically wake up one day with an answer, but, but probing for that, I think, is kind of the recurring theme I come back to. I reckon that was worth the wait, mate. Gold! <laughs> Try to do something. <laughs> Are we losing our grip on the term career? Because hearing you talk and looking at the world around us right now, I mean, when I was a kid, Taylor, my dad used to say, get a job, stay there for 20 years because that proves you're loyal. That proves that you are somebody who's going to stick it out and you're going to grow through the company. But that thinking seems to be pretty archaic. But my question based on what you've just talked about and looking at the world today, are we still going to be chasing careers? Is that a word that we're still going to be using in 5, 10, 15 years? I'm not sure. I think we're certainly losing our grip on, you know, when you think about career, the metaphor that comes to mind for me, and I think for most people, is career ladder, right? And so you have this notion of, um, you know, my, my my dad graduated from college, I think, in 1963. Uh, he... Uh, got a job, and it was pretty clear at that point, you know, there was what you would call like a a career ladder in front of him, right? Like these were the steps, you know, at 22 years old, he could kind of tell what what the steps were that were going to happen over the next 40, 50 years and sort of, and move up those steps. It was a very, you might call it like a legible or uh, a visible um, career path. And I think what's, what's changing now is that's becoming... Um, you know, I've heard the metaphor like career jungle gym, uh, that it's not quite so like linear and upward sloping and all obvious from the start, but that it's much more of a, um, sort of, uh, it's an emergent thing. It's something that's constantly changing. And so we're sort of, um, if you will, you know, we're meandering around this jungle gym, um, without a clear end in mind, just trying to figure out, you know, given where we are in our lives right now, given our life situations, what makes sense, um, from a work perspective that we can fit it in with um, with the overall kind of you know season of life that we're in. I've heard you speak and you said that you, in your mind you had this hypothesis that starting an online business isn't just a viable option, but it's actually the much safer bet to survive into the future compared to having a traditional job in, in, the, in the years to come. Is that something that you still feel strongly about? Uh, I feel strongly that sort of developing entrepreneurial skills is an essential component. I think there's there's ways to do that within jobs. I think it's very rare. I think there are very few jobs that uh, facilitate that. And so I think by necessity, a lot of people end up starting their own business just because I think the number of people that recognize that, that the nature of work is changing and, and the positions available for them is just the math doesn't work out. And so I think, you know, for most people, most of the time, um, starting your own thing kind of becomes the only way to uh, to move in that direction. But I think 
you know, what I saw and what I still see is um, just how the leverages have changed. So you think about if you wanted to start a business, uh, I mean, as recently as, uh, you know, the early 2000s, called 15 years ago, we're talking on a, a podcast right now. Um, I don't know how much, you know, how intensive your audio setup is, but, you know, my audio setup is, uh, you know, a $20 call recording software, uh, a $40 podcast mic, and maybe a $10 uh, sort of like arm that I'm, you know, screwed the, the mic into my desk with. And the cost of that, you know, 15 years ago in a sound studio would have been tens of thousands of dollars. Um, and the, so the, I think the cost, you know, the, the barriers to entry, the ability to get started with this kind of stuff, you know, that's not just podcasting, that's, uh, you know, setting up a website. You know, if you want to build a website in the late 90s, early 2000s, uh, it would have been, t- you know, tens of thousands of dollars to get the equivalent quality of what you can do today for, you know, like a Squarespace website for, for $10 a month or something. Um, and so you think about, okay, you know, these, these costs have come down dramatically. And at the same time, the potential has gone up dramatically, right? Like all of a sudden you have, uh, you know, we're talking and we're, you know, I don't know, 20,000 miles away or 16,000 miles away. You have this, this global reach uh, potential um, with this very low barrier to entry. And so your, your risk has gone down dramatically, uh, and your upside has gone up dramatically. So if you just think about it, you know, everything is sort of a bet, right? Like when you when you take a job at Coca-Cola or whatever, you're, you're betting that it's going to last 30 years and you're betting they're going to pay out your pension. And uh, that may or may not be true. And, you know, you can only find out with time. And so I think when you look at this, you know, when you, you think of everything is, you know, nothing is for certain. Everything is a probability. Everything is a bet. Uh, I think the odds on the bet here, you know, in terms of starting a business are getting better and better. The, the, the downsides are getting smaller and smaller uh, and the upsides are getting uh, bigger and bigger. And so that, you know, if you're, you know, you have so much time, you have so many resources, you know, mostly our resources are time. Uh, and where are you going to distribute those chips on the table? And I think uh, what I see and, and what I've seen over the last um you know, I don't call it five or 10 years, is that uh, the odds are very shifting, very much shifting in favor of this, uh, this ability for people to pursue entrepreneurial projects with very low downsides and very high upsides. So based on that, I heard you recently and you said, well, there's, there's two parts to this question and I'll set it up. You said recently that if someone was to take the first step after this podcast, that you would find something that would cost less than a hundred bucks that you could do within a week. With that in mind, I love that premise of dumbing it right down to, okay, now you've got no excuse not to start. What's the type of skill set that you would have me investigate to get on board this premise? Because I like where you're going with it all. I completely understand as a 42-year-old that says, yeah, I know I should because I'm in a dead-end job. I can't see where this is going and I have a desire to do something bigger or better. I've taken away the barrier of money and time and not getting started, the rigor mortis of not starting. What skill sets would you suggest somebody learn, start with, to get prepared for the work of the future? So I guess I could speak to, you know, where I started was marketing. Um, I think to some extent, I'm always, uh, I'm always a bit hesitant to answer this question because it's a bit of a paradox, right? Which, you know, kind of my message is I'm saying, 
the problem is that people are out there, they're looking for a roadmap and they want to be told what to do and they need to develop this capacity to uh, figure out what's worth doing and identify opportunities themselves. And then, you know, the question back to me is always like, well, what should I do? Uh, and so it, there's, a bit of a, there's a bit of a paradox there, right? Where it's like, well, you know, uh, that's the question, right? Like, what do you do is, is sort of the, the fundamental question. So that, that's my philosophical take. Uh, on the question, I th- if you want sort of like practical answers, I think uh, marketing is a really good um, is a really good skill set. Uh, I think what we're seeing in terms of just like the labor market more broadly is over the past hundred years, uh, production is getting easier and easier. You know, you think about um, in the late nineteenth, early twentieth century. Uh, most of the the bottlenecks in the economy were just like we couldn't make enough stuff fast enough. It was mostly about how can we produce things more quickly. And increasingly, the bottleneck is, you know, we can make so much stuff so efficiently and so cheaply and move it around the world. Uh, And the scarce resource is really uh, attention, people's time and attention. And so I think marketing is sort of the study of um, how do you – study of how people distribute their attention and then, you know, how you um, capture some of that attention and how you use that to – uh, to sell products and services. Earlier in the show, Taylor, you talked about the mindset of finding something that you care about and something you want to put your name to. And I heard you say that in the future, making work a meaningful part of your life and your life, one of meaningful work is going to become of primary importance to us. Just explain how that sits together for us. And for someone who is not sure what is meaningful for them, do you have any examples or stories or suggestions of people that have spoken to you since you did the book who are looking for that meaningful work? So I think, uh, you know, it's a tricky thing, right? Because uh, oftentimes the response to, you know, figure out what you care about and what matters is people go, well, I don't have anything I care about that much. Uh, and so the, 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 the answer is to do nothing. Um, so I think, you know, figuring out, uh, you know, I, I call it resource mode sometimes, right? So, you know, you know, you need to move in a certain direction and you sort of have an idea of what the resources are. You need to move in that direction. You need, uh, you know, these skill sets and these contacts, um, and you need to learn these things just kind of going into like, a a resource mode where, you know, you start studying all the things and, you know, maybe you start some projects that, uh, you know, aren't like the one thing you're really super excited about and want to do forever, but you'll learn something interesting and maybe you'll meet someone interesting and you'll develop some, some useful skills along the way, you know, going back to, uh, the quotes you mentioned, like what's something you can launch in the next seven days for less than a hundred dollars. Sort of, I think that approach can be, um, can be fruitful, right? Of like, well, let's just pick something and see how it goes. And then I'll learn something out of that process. And I, you know, it's not going to cost me that much to, to learn that lesson. And then after that, I'll have better information. I can make um, better decisions about what it is that's, that's meaningful to me. And that can be quite narrow, can't it? I mean, I've heard you talk about the fact of a lady who launched a career where it was songs for sailors. <laughs> is that right? Uh, yeah, I uh, I got that story from uh, Derek Sivers, actually. Uh, he ran a company uh, called CD Baby, and they sold – it was one of the – I think it was the first site to sell, like, independent artist CDs online. So not, not through major record labels, but just helping kind of, like, indie musicians sell um, – sell their art. And there was a woman, yeah, she was, I think she owned a sailboat. Uh, she sailed 
and she loved music and she loved sailing. And so she had, I don't know, maybe like 10 or 15 albums uh, <laughs> on songs for sailors. You know, cause she would cover different songs or like, you know, tweak the lyrics or whatever to be about sailing. And uh, that was her full-time business. She just produced, uh, she produced songs for sailors uh, and music for sailors. And I think, you know, it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's kind of amusing, but I think it's also like the, you know, talking about limited downside and unlimited upside. I think a big part of that, that upside and that opportunity is historically the world has been organized geographically, right? Like you've got your local grocery shop and the butcher shop and the laundromat and whatever it is. And increasingly what we're seeing is, you know, as, as the internet becomes more and more, uh, pervasive and more and more, um, part of the lives and how the economy is organized is all of a sudden there's all these uh, sort of sim- almost like these local businesses, these you call them like niche businesses or lifestyle businesses uh, where you can serve sort of a small local community by, uh, by what they're interested in. Right. Like there are, you know, if you have access to 7 billion people over the internet, there's actually, you know, there's enough people that really that like sailing and like, you know, every year they would love to buy a new album about, um, about you know how to say or how you know whatever the latest cover songs of uh, sailing are, so that they can uh, listen to it on their boat. So we're seeing you know all these all these sorts of businesses where you have uh, you know a very targeted, interested community that you just couldn't reach in a profitable way. You know, there's no way if she was selling those CDs in record stores, there was just no way. Like the economics didn't work, right? Like you couldn't stock them on enough shelves. Uh, to make the economics of it work, but when your distribution cost is basically zero, you know, she's paying, uh, you know, I don't know, fractions of a penny to host those files on a, a cloud server somewhere. Uh, all of a sudden, the economics of those sorts of businesses work, and so I think a lot of people, you know, from a macro perspective, a lot of people are going to move out of these these big corporations, uh, you know, which because of their cost structure, they can't go after these opportunities. Just uh, you know. IBM or uh, a major record label, they can't uh, they can't go after that sort of thing. It doesn't work um, from there. You know they have so much fixed cost. They have to have you know, Ed Sheeran or whatever. Uh, but you know if what you want to do is you want to find a business that uh, you know pays you know makes a good income and lets you serve a, a small community of customers who uh, you like and respect. Uh, and do that in a way that uh, you know sort of fits in with uh, what you're doing in your life. I think that opportunity is more more possible than ever. I think we need to do some cover songs of songs about beer. You and I, Gary, we could do up a website. But that's just the thing. That's that's what I love about this example. Is that example sums up exactly where we've gone so far in the show? Because that person doing it, that lady, you would turn that entrepreneurial, found something she cared about. It was something she was interested in and knew about because she lived on a boat and was sailing. Her whole motivation, I suspect, was to be of service to others. And you could do that to your point, Taylor, with a little downside for a hundred bucks in seven days, you could put up your first track and then potentially make a little income stream sufficiently enough to be able to pay for whatever she needs on board the boat. I mean, it's as much as we laugh at it, it's, it's actually a classic example of finding a small, finding or creating a small community, taking away the barriers to entry, and then she can really do it as a side hustle to something else until it gets going. 
it really does illustrate all the stuff we've talked about so far, doesn't it? It does. And I haven't actually ever asked anyone to do this exercise, but I bet it would be productive. And you know, I think a lot of times these opportunities are at the intersection of you know two interests or two talents someone has that they, they didn't quite see a way to put together. Like, you know, you wouldn't have ever thought about like, you know, I, I she could sing, obviously she had some musical talent and she was a sailor. And uh, you never would have thought that the, those two things go together. Like you wouldn't think about that. Or there's a business at the, the intersection, but uh, I mean, when I look back at, uh, you know, my business and what I do in my business, it, it's always these intersections of, um, not necessarily totally unrelated, but uh, seemingly, at least on the surface, unrelated things that all of a sudden when you overlap them, uh, becomes this really interesting um, opportunity that no one's ever thought of before. There's actually, a, there's actually a premise behind that, which I remember Scott Adams, the guy who created the Dilbert strips, the comic strips. And he was on with Ferris on the Tim Ferriss uh, show, and he said... In his mind, it wasn't about being the best in the world at something. He said, in his mind, the real power was when you can be in the top 20 or 25% in the world of a couple of different skills, marry those two things together, then you become unique. And he rattled off a whole bunch of ideas of people who had different skills in complementary areas or even different areas, but put them together. But by putting them together, create their own industry category area of business or life that nobody else was in and this lady who's a sailor and could sing is a classic example of she may not be the best singer in the world the best sailor in the world put those two things together that's unique and then it sort of layers across all the other stuff we're talking about and there is no barrier to entry because today with the music industry you know different to what to Derek Sivers era of CD Baby you can do it and I just I don't know, it just seems to me that the problem today is getting through that hesitation and procrastination to have a go at it. But seemingly we're taking away all these barriers today where people could just have a crack. And the other story I really love kind of along that that thinking is, uh, you know, the, one of the messages that I think is, is important is this idea that you, you don't know where it's going to end up if you start, right? That, you know, you start working on something and that turns into something else and that turns into something else. Uh, and there's a guy I, I profiled in, um, in my book, The End of Jobs, named Rob Walling. And um, when I, the book came out, it was, it was actually a quite good time. I think like right after the book came out, uh, he exited um, a marketing automation business he had. I don't think it was like public, but I think he, you know, uh, it was you know one of these things that makes the newspaper or at least the local newspaper, and it's like you know local entrepreneur has this big 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 exit, yada yada. Um, and so you know it looks kind of on the surface, or it looks to everyone looking in that's just reading about this in the newspaper for the first time that Rob is this. Uh, you know, natural entrepreneur, and he, you know, just had all these brilliant ideas and made them happen. And he, you know, uh, kind of this whole archetype we have in our head from, you know, Forbes magazine and the like. Uh, and Rob's story is really, uh, I think, inspiring. Uh, but he started, uh, he was working a, a job, I think, at a construction company. Um, and he started doing all these side projects. So his first one was, um, he built a website selling uh, duck boat ebooks. So a duck boat 
it's like these duck hunting boats. Uh, so for people that go duck hunting, uh, I know this is a thing in the U.S. I don't know how global this is, but what you'll do is you'll you'll build these camouflaged boats, which you'll take and you'll kind of hide out in the middle of the lake, and you'll hide in these camouflaged boats uh, with uh, you know some sort of like cover leaves, and you know you have like a tent thing almost in the boat on top of you, and then when the the, the ducks fly in, you pop out of your uh, boat and you start shooting the ducks. Um, so uh, he wrote an ebook. He went to Home Depot and he figured out how you build these little duck boats. Uh, and he wrote an ebook and uh, he built a website. And, you know, I can't, it was duck, you know how to build a duckboat.com or something like that. Uh, <laughs> and he, he put it up there. Uh, and yeah, and you know, I don't know. I think maybe uh, it started making like you know, he was selling it for fifty dollars and he was selling like ten a month. So he started making five hundred dollars a month of people. Uh, and again, going back to this idea of like, you know, these, these niche audiences that there's, you know, 10 people every month that would pay $50 to learn how to build their own duck, their own duck boat. Um, so we started with that and it just, uh, the term I like to use is, is it stair step from there that all of a sudden he started to develop some skills, right? You know, he learned how to use, he built it on a WordPress website. He learned how to use WordPress software and he ranked it in Google. He's searching his optimization to make it show up when people search for the query, you know, how to build a duck boat. And so he started to learn about how search engine optimization works and he started to learn how, you know, WordPress work and he started to learn how, you know, payment processes work. How do you set up an ebook? How do you, uh, make it for sale. And so he started doing this with other products. So he had one, uh, I think he had one that was like an electrician, an electrician job site for some local, uh, area. You know, uh, this was like before Angie's list, uh, you know, you search for like electrician in, uh, Poughkeepsie, Idaho or whatever. Uh, and he had this, you know, site that would let electricians, uh, register and then he was either selling advertising or he was doing it sort of like as a lead generation thing where the ele- electricians would pay for every time a lead came through for their business. Uh, he had a wedding website business where he was, was uh, building wedding websites for people. Again, this was like before, you know, I know they have those like builders now. Um, this is probably like mid 2000s. Um, and then that sort of spiraled. And all of a sudden he had, I don't know, four or five businesses. They were making enough money that he could um, that he could leave his job. Uh, and he had, at the, he was married, and I think he had two kids at this time, maybe three. Um, and so he was making enough money through these, uh, you know, these seemingly like, you know, tiny, useless, or um, just super niche businesses that that became his, his full-time thing. And then it just spiraled from there. So, you know, one of the things he was doing with these websites is he was doing search and optimization, and he'd found this tool called uh, Hittail, which was, uh, it helped you find, uh, SEO keywords to rank your site for. So one of the most difficult parts of search engine optimization is, um, you know, how do I find words people are searching for that are, you know, relevant to my site? You know, like how to build a duck boat or, you know, variations of that, like duck boat construction plan or uh, the duck boat guide or whatever it is um, that I can, you know, rank my site for in Google. And so this was a tool that helped you find those keywords. Um, and he ended up, he, uh, I think he bought it um, from the current owner, the current owner was trying to get out. Uh, and all of a sudden he had, you know, all these, uh, skills. He understood how SEO worked. He understood how the customers used the products because he was one of the, uh, the customers. And he started to, you know, kind of continue to add to his tool belt. So, you know, then he started doing pay-per-click marketing and he started doing software as a service development. You know, he had to learn how to actually develop the software right now. He was selling a product that was, uh, technical, uh, he ran that for a few years, um, and after that, he started his uh, 
email marketing business, uh, marketing automation business, which is the one he sold um, about the time that my book came out. And this was over a period of about a decade. Um, but I think, you know, I, I always come back to it, it's very inspiring to me, right? That, you know, he started with something that just seems so, um, you know, either silly or small or, or sort of trivial, uh, but that slowly, you know, he was able to, because the barrier to entry to get started was so low, he was able to start um, stair-stepping his way up, right? Building a skill set, um, building a relationship, building, a, you know, a team, hiring people to help manage the products and help manage the companies. Um, it was able to turn that into something uh, very substantial. That's gold. Gold, gold, gold ducks. Cha-ching. I, I, think, uh, I think we need to create a Doseki appreciation website. Podcast. Uh, well, podcast, and perhaps we could uh, we could sort of suggest ways that people could make their own doseki. Negative, <laughs> negative ghostwriter. Let's pool. stick. Let's stick with the, let's stick with the real thing. <laughs> hey, um, Taylor, you you have said that you have had to face the fear yourself of putting your stuff out there. So when you did your book, you had to come face to face with the fear of of suddenly publishing and putting yourself into the mainstream market. And I suspect uh, what I like about this interview thus far is we really have taken away the barriers to someone having a crack. And I think that's terribly important. And even even that last little bit about improving your skill set, like what's, what's a little skill you need, which isn't a money thing, it's a thinking thing. What's a skill you need to get started? However, I suspect there will still be people with a fear a fear of doing whatever. What have you learned through your process of writing and being a successful author now? How do you how do you now deal with your own fears? So I think for me it comes back to, you know, what do you care about enough to act in spite of the fear? Because you know, the the truth is, at least for me, and and this is true with other people I've talked to, is uh, the fear actually gets worse. It doesn't get better. Uh, and so it's not, you know, if you wait until the fear goes away, it will never go away. Uh, it never disappears. And so, you know, what I always come back to is, you know, what, what is it that I care enough about that I'm willing to act uh, in spite of the fear? I can't, I can't, there was a t- TV host, I want to say it was Johnny Carson. It was a very well-known um, primetime TV host in the U.S. Uh, and, you know, had a nightly show for a few decades uh and he threw up every night before he went on stage at a stage fright and then he walked on the stage and that was every you know every night for 20 years he vomited into the trash can on the side of the stage out of fear and then he walked onto the stage and he ran the show and i think uh in a lot of, it, and that's because that's what he wanted to do you know he loved uh, running the show and you know having the interviews and and uh, entertaining people and that was uh, he cared enough to be able to, you know, puke in the trash can every single night and go out and and host the show. So I, you know, I don't puke in trash cans every day uh, or anything of that measure. But uh, I don't, I don't think that fear ever goes away. And so, um, what I come back to personally is, you know, what do I care enough about that I'm willing to to act in spite of that fear? You've you've said that if not your favorite book, but one of your favorite books is The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. And that book is all about resistance. And I, I, it's funny because when I heard you talk about it on another show, I had pulled it out of my bookshelf and I was halfway through rereading it again because it's such a great, such a great book. As a writer and someone who's currently still writing and producing, 
How do you get through that resistance? Because Stephen Pressfield's book is really, in a lot of ways, talking about the writing and creative process, although it applies to every aspect of our life. How do you how do you personally get through resistance? Yeah, I, I think it all comes back. You know, I, I have ways I cope, or um, you know, little things I do. But I think it, it really it really all comes back to this. You know, do I care enough? to deal with it or do I care enough to, to act in spite of it? Because at the end of the day, uh, what, where, where the resistance gets me, uh, is when I just don't care enough about the project. Um, and it's not important enough to me. And so I end up, uh, giving into the resistance and, you know, all the tricks, uh, in the world have never helped me overcome that. Uh, and so, yeah, I really always come back to, um, you know, what is the thing that I care enough about to to just be able to sit with the fear? You've you've said you've created your own, uh, I call it productivity process or a system to get stuff done. Um, and some of it you took from Paul Graham. And it's the maker, manager, administrative time philosophy. Could you just run that for us? How does that sit in your day? So how do you allocate your day around make a manager and administrative? Yeah, so I think one of the things that happens uh, just sort of the way work works today is uh, everyone's day gets chopped up, right? You have a 9 a.m. meeting, you have a uh, lunch meeting, you have a 3 p.m. meeting, and then you try to just, you know, you sort of fit all the other pieces of work uh, in between these meetings or in between whatever these other obligations are. And the trouble with that, um, that Paul Graham points out, is uh, there, you can kind of divide work types of work into two categories. One is what you would call this sort of managerial work, right, which is which is going to the meetings, uh, which is answering your email. Uh, it's these like 5, 15, maybe 30-minute tasks. Um, but the problem is there's another type of work, which is maker work, uh, which requires long periods of um, uninterrupted time. So, you know, if you're a computer programmer and you're programming software, or for me, uh, it's writing, or for a designer, it might be, you know, working on a new design, um, working on a business plan, whatever it is. It's one of those things where you got to sit down and you have to kind of load up all your mental RAM. And you've got to be able to look at the thing for, you know, two, three, four hours without having anyone interrupt you, right? That if someone interrupts you an hour in, you don't get anything done, right? All the work gets done in the last hour or two of that block after you've had time to kind of load everything up uh, in your head. And so uh, kind of finding some way to restructure your day around prioritizing what I would call these big maker blocks, these blocks where the most valuable type of work is done. Again, like, you know, for me, it, it is writing, right? Like that is the most valuable work I do in my day. And it's also the hardest thing to fit in, right? I can't sit down and just write for 30 minutes. I've really got to kind of load up all the mental RAM. Um, so I guess practically right now, what that looks for me is uh, I usually sort of have uh, meetings or I'll respond to anything that's urgent, um, in the morning. And then from about 10 to two, uh, I'm just offline. Uh, so I'll write for maybe, uh, you know, an hour and a half or two hours, and then I'll take a break, uh, have lunch, maybe go for a walk, um, for 30 minutes or something, and then sit back down and write again until 2 PM. And so, uh, you know, basically there's a four hour chunk in the middle of my day where I'm, I'm not talking to anyone. I'm not, I'm, I'm, 
blocked off all social media. I'm often blocked off the internet entirely. And I'm just working on one big writing challenge for the day. And then sort of the rest of the day after that, from, you know, called two to 6 PM, I'll go back into sort of managerial mode. And it's, uh, it's 5.30 p.m. now my time, so it's kind of that second half of the day uh, where I'll go back and I'll answer emails and I'll talk to people on the phone. And uh, if I'm working with clients, uh, I'll, you know, I'll talk to clients or I'll uh, do that kind of uh, managerial work. And then uh, for me, administrative work is just what I would call like this very low, uh, low bandwidth or low mental uh, energy stuff that sort of has to get done. So, you know, you got to call the credit card company because there was a charge that doesn't look right, or you got to make travel reservations uh, or those sorts of tasks. And then I, I tend to prioritize those for the very last thing in the day when I'm kind of just zonked and I don't have that much, uh, that much kind of brain juice left anyway. Um, then I'll just kind of like run through the tasks. So thinking about, you know, when, when, what is your kind of natural energy state? So I'm, I'm a morning person. So, um, sort of doing that that 10 to 2 p.m. block tends to be my most productive time and so that's when I do my my sort of maker work uh, but finding out you know what that time is for you biologically I think it's different for everyone and then blocking that out for the really big uh, the big creative things and slotting stuff in around them can I just take you back one step there in you mentioned going for a walk around lunchtime do you use that half hour as a brain break to sort of clear your head and clear out the cobwebs and get ready to go again? Or are you using that time to sort of prepare yourself for what's coming next? Yeah, I'm using it as kind of like a clear out the break. I'll usually like listen to an audio book. I'm listening to Cryptonomicon by Neil Stevenson right now. It's a, kind of like a sci-fi book. Um, but yeah, I find, uh, and I think this is different for everyone, um, sort of like 90 minutes to two hours of like really uninterrupted work. So, you know, I'm not getting up from my desk or I'm just getting up to use the restroom or something. Uh, I usually need maybe like a, at least a 15, usually like a 30 minute break after that to just kind of, you know, let the cobwebs clear and then I can sit down and work for another um, hour and a half or so. With your writing and process, do you find it helpful to have a deadline or a constraint to work toward? And the reason I say that is on the show we've talked about DJ Shadow and super successful guy and he said that unless he puts down a date that this is going to start or be done by the first day of summer, he just doesn't start. Or we spoke to another legendary singer-songwriter in Australia called Ivor Davies and in his terms were, if I don't have a commission, I just don't create. Like he's not a sort of guy who's always creating, always writing. He needs a commission, a deadline. Are you like that? Uh, I, so even if I don't have a deadline, I will write. Like for me, it's uh, I call, there's two types of people. I call them uh, sprinters and trudgers. And so sprinters, I think, are kind of the type where you know they they uh, you know if they won't work on something for uh, maybe like in school, right? You don't work on the paper for you know the two months you know about it, and then like in the the last forty eight hours, you just you do all the research and you write the thirty page paper and you stay up. Uh, 48 hours and you just sprint to get it done. And some people that works. Um, I tend to be more of a, what I would call like a trudger. Like I'll, um, I sort of have my daily routine and like I'll get up and work on, I'll get up and write on something. Um, but I do find what happens if I don't have constraints is uh, it just sort of, um, it's, it's never done. It's never 
never finished. Um, I think it's, it's either Picasso or Van Gogh, but it's, you know, art is never finished. It's only abandoned that you never actually, you have this vision in your mind of how good it could be. And it, it never becomes that good because as soon as you kind of get it to the next step, you realize that it could actually be even better. Uh, and then you, know, you get to that step and you realize it could be even better. And so eventually you just have to have some deadline, or at least I have to have some deadline where I just say, uh, this is it. Like it's, uh, you know, I want to work on and I want to move on and I want to work on a different project or, or honestly more often it's like, you know, I just am so tired of, you know, I've been working on this thing for so long and I'm just, um, often at the end, uh, I joke like, you know, I've talked to other authors that often, you know, by the time the book comes out and an author's going to do their whole kind of like publishing tour and media tour, they're just like really sick of the book. Uh, because they've been, you know, they've been looking at it every day for two years. They've read it 150 times. Uh, they've read all, you know, every source in it 150 times. And they just have to get it out the door. Give it. Just ship it. Yeah. It's a bit like this show, really. Yeah, I'm weekly. sure it is. We- <laughs> weekly. Um, <laughs> weekly. <laughs> mate, in the uh, in your book, The End of Jobs, uh, you've talked about self awareness, which. Uh, I, I like that idea of that because I think there's been a thread through the show thus far where you've talked about and quite passionately knowing, you know, what do you care about? And I'm just wondering through now having done the book and you have promoted, it's been super successful. What have you learned about yourself in writing the book now, having to talk through the content, people giving you stories, anecdotes, examples, praise, criticism? What, what, what has Tattle learned about himself after the book? So I think I had a few big learnings from it. Uh, I think one for me, you know, I talked about Rob Walling and his sort of uh, you know, his sort of stair-step thing. Uh, so, you know, when I wrote the book, it was very much uh, a side project. Uh, it was, uh, you know, I'd wake up in the morning and I would work on it before. Uh, I were, I was uh, basically kind of a freelance consultant, um, digital marketing, particularly like email kind of stuff. That was my background. And so, you know, that was what I was doing more or less full-time. That was how I paid the bills. And so I would get up in the morning and work on this book and, and kind of Part of what I want to see is, you know, I, I'd said for a few years before that, that, uh, you know, I really wanted to be a writer and I had a, a blog that I um, posted to, I don't, you know, every couple of weeks or something. I wasn't uh, perfectly regular or anything. Uh, and I said, well, you know, if I say I want to be a writer, let's see if that's really true. Let's see, you know, do I care enough to get up an hour earlier in the morning and work on this thing every morning um, and really get it done? And I, you know, part of what the book taught me was uh, I did care enough. Um, and that was important to me, uh, and I did enjoy writing, and I wanted that to be an increasing part of um, part of what I was doing. Um, and I think the again going back to sort of the the emotional work that it was very you know the process for me it was it was more emotional work than I'd done in any project prior to that in my life, um, and that was. Uh, you know, as these things are, like both very challenging, but also um, the most rewarding project I'd ever worked on just because of the emotional labor uh, that went into it. Um, so I think that was one thing. Um, and I think, you know, the other big thing for me really was uh, the book was was much more successful than I expected it to be. Um, and in, in retrospect, the reason for that was really uh, the the people that were supportive of it, people that I didn't think would uh, support it or, 
you know, people that I just didn't, I didn't, I underestimated how, uh, how much they cared and really how generous they were. Um, and so I think, you know, I had this real sensation maybe two or three days after the book came out, you know, I, I could see the sales, uh, numbers and they just kept going up. Um, and I, you know, I, I did, I'd kind of done my initial marketing push, not, but you know, that had tapered out and I didn't have anything left. And, uh, you know, the numbers just kept going up and I realized, you know, it was just, um, this very much kind of grassroots thing of people that had, uh, that I'd met over the years that, had, you know, heard me talk about the book, uh, and that knew I cared about it that were, you know, buying it and recommending it to their friends and, uh, everything else. And, uh, that, that sensation of just sort of, um, being surrounded by generous people um, and the people that had helped make that possible uh, was really rewarding and I think uh, made me prioritize and think a lot more about, um, you know, investing, not necessarily in just like a business sense, but uh, uh, investing in those sorts of relationships, um, whether that's, you know, going to conferences, whether that's, you know, hosting events for people to come to, whether that's just like getting people together for brunch or dinner or, you know, calling someone I haven't called in a long time or whatever it is. Uh, I became a lot more self-aware of how important that was to me. Only a couple of weeks ago, I had the privilege of interviewing Ryan Holiday, who wrote Ego is the Enemy and a best-selling author many times over. And we really dug into ego, which I found fascinating. And just hearing you say that, Tyler, it just seems that when you have success and you do become a bestseller and people are craving to get a piece of you, your ego can run out of control and it can actually take over and take you to places you don't really want to go to until it's too late. How, how have you kept your ego in check? Do you, is there something you think about as a process, people? Like what, what keeps your ego in check after the success you've had? I'm not sure. I'm not sure I do anything uh, super actively. The, the first thing that came to mind, there's a uh, – he's a, he's a Catholic monk, I believe. Um, I don't know, you call him sort of like a spiritual teacher or something. His name is uh, Richard Rohr, uh, and he has a – sort of a saying or a mantra or something that, uh, you know, he hopes that every day one humbling event will happen to him. You know, he'll get one email from someone telling them, you know, how much crap he's full of, uh, <laughs> or, or, or something like that. We're, uh, we're, in, we're so in a good place I, here, oh, Robert. Geez, we get those daily. <laughs> yeah, so I think, I think I'm, I'm fortunate enough that I get those periodically, uh, and those tend to do a pretty good job of keeping me, uh, keeping me in check. Oh, there's another one right now. Cha-ching. <laughs> it's funny that uh, you should mention that because Richard Raw is a big fan of the Mojo Radio Show. Totally. Oh. I don't know whether he mentioned that. So you're we call him Rich, Richo. We Richo. can't get rid Richinator. of him. The Richinator. Just, yeah, can't get rid of him. Persistent guy. Persistent. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Pers well, in fact, I think he mentioned that his middle name was Persistence at some stage there along the way. Just call me Mr. Persistence. That's good. I'd, that's nice. <laughs> Richard Persistent Roar. Uh, I... <laughs> I'm uh, conscious of your time. I just want to, it's just something that's in the back of my mind uh, after sort of coming across all your material, listening to you, hearing you here. I just want your perspective on this. I read a number of months ago that one of the biggest health issues facing particularly your country, America, right now is isolation. And a lot of people would be traveling down this road that we have discussed on the show. 
they spend the first year working from home, working with a laptop, sitting in coffee shops. It's all really good. And then suddenly the emails stop for a few weeks. The phone calls don't come, work dries up, and suddenly they feel very disconnected. And they're saying now that isolation is one of the enemies for the digital nomad. And hence the reason that they're saying is one of the contributors to WeWork being so successful and being, I don't know, 20 billion something company now in a matter of less than a decade because these people who are who the entrepreneurial type people who are working for themselves or just one or two at an office can now have this environment of impact of people around them. What's your take on all that, mate? Are you seeing... Are you, do you agree with, with why this is maybe successful for WeWork is that isolation is an issue and that's solving a problem for us? Yeah, I mean, I think that is that is one of the challenges, right? Like uh, many people, myself included, uh, miss the water cooler conversations or aspects of the water cooler conversations, right, that you had. Um, and I think, that, again, this is something that's hardwired into us, really, right? Like you're, you're used to having this sort of uh, social routine and... Uh, you know, working at a company or work, working in an office sort of, you know, it's not that unlike, you know, you, you're working in a tribe, right? Like you go off and everyone's, you know, when someone's hunting and someone's gathering and you come back and you talk over the fire or you, you know, someone's marketing and someone's uh, writing code and you come back and you talk over the, the water cooler. So I do think those, those social rhythms are, are hardwired into us uh, and we have to find some way uh, to deal with them. I think, for me personally, uh, I guess I, I'm to some extent fortunate. I think I'm I'm probably more of a loner than most people. I can kind of spend 80% of my time alone, and I'm pretty happy with that. Um, but I have, you know, increasingly had to find ways to um, to build structure or to build those sorts of uh, social events into my life. So you know, I, you know, hosting um, you know brunches. Um, a Sunday brunch or something. I've hosted a kind of a monthly Sunday brunch every month um, for the last two or three years. Again, for that reason, um, you know, Thursday night dinners, um, just sort of building some of those communal activities or some of those social activities uh, into my week. Like in the same way you would, you know, we talked about maker and manager schedule and building in these sorts of work blocks. I think, um, you know, when I talk about it, I normally tell people, um, start, you know, when you're, if you're planning out your week and you want to go in and structure things, uh, you know, you start first with sort of your social and your relationship stuff, like whether it's your family or your close friends, that's the first thing you block off on your calendar. Then you block off, you know, your health, your go for a walk or to the gym. And then you block off, you know, your maker time or your, uh, when that, like when that work time is. So I think working things, you know, increasingly I find, you know, trying to one of the nice things about having a more flexible work situation is you can sort of adapt it to, um, to being around the, to being in those social situations more. Two, two quick things before we finish. I've heard you mention, and you've just alluded to it, uh, about your mastermind groups that you are a member of. Are you still a member of those mastermind groups? Are they the dinners you're hosting? And did you create your own mastermind group or did you join somebody else's? Uh, all of the above. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let us uh, keep you so nice and quick. I'm, Good. I'm a, I'm, I'm a member. Uh, I'm a member of a lot of those groups. Uh, I ha- I've run a couple of those groups. Uh, I participate in other people's. I have people to mine. Uh, yeah, all of the above. Sweet. And 
This is something I would like you... It's interesting. I was uh, setting up for the show today and my daughter said to me, who are you interviewing? And I told her and she said, what does he a specialist in? And I told her and she said, how does he know? Out of the mouths of children. Absolutely. Um, and I went, that's such a good point. And it leads me on to the question I have for you. Could you hypothesise of what work will look like in a decade? The reason I ask you the question, and I am after your own hypothesis, is that I heard an interview maybe six months ago, and it was somebody, it might have been Kevin Kelly from Wired Magazine, who said that he believed in the not-too-distant future, we'll wake up in the morning, log on to a, a, a work board, we will see a job, We'll take a job on the hours, the days and the pay that we want to pay. We'll do the job. We'll log off. We'll go in a week or two later when we're ready to work again. We'll find the job board. We'll see all these jobs. We'll pick out the job we want. We'll do it. And then we'll go and do something else. And I've always thought about that. And it just seems the way that we're seeing things that that is a direction. Would you agree with that or with the research you've done, your writing, what can you see the work environment looking like in a decade? Yes, I I would agree with that for the most part. I think uh, the other way I often talk about it and think about it is, um, you know, if you think about the, the Hollywood model or how movies get made in Hollywood, right, it's sort of this interesting anomaly because... Uh, a movie is this really big, complex project. You know, it can be you know the production can be hundreds of millions of dollars. You've got uh, hundreds of thousands of people uh, involved in it, but it's not any sort of permanent organization, right? You know, you you decide you want to make the movie. Uh, you know, the money is allocated for it, and you know, sort of magically, uh, you know, you go out and you cast everyone and you hire everyone and you come out together and you do this big thing and you promote it. Uh, and then everyone just sort of disappears, right? So, you know, you, you just have this sort of emergent structure that comes around and does this, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars project uh, and then just sort of disappears. Um, and so I think that sort of model of work is going to become a lot more mainstream, right? Where, where there'll be um, some sort of massive project uh, and we'll have um, – yeah, I mentioned uh, I'm getting more and more interested. I don't know if I mentioned, but I, I've been getting more and more interested in cryptocurrency uh, and Bitcoin. Uh, and one of the reasons for that is, uh, you know, if you think about what the Internet did with media and telecommunications, is, is it lowered the transaction cost, right? That you could all of a sudden reach people, uh, you know, with a blog post or a podcast uh, anywhere in the world or anywhere in the world that had a, an Internet connection, which is, you know, quickly becoming everywhere in the world. Uh, and so I think that's sort of the same kind of thing is going to happen uh, with work and with money, right? That you'll, you know, you'll be able to, uh, and there's companies working on, there's a company called Colony.io, if you want to check it out, that is sort of working on this. You know, it's like a, a Trello board, if you've ever used Trello uh, to manage a project, where you could just pull in, you can kind of assign an incentive to each task. You know, if you, you know, produce the podcast or edit the podcast is assigned a certain uh, incentive. And then, you know, the person that is able to complete the task according to the parameters and drag it across to the uh, the next stage or whatever um, receives whatever the, you know, whatever the bounty or whatever the incentive uh, was for that. And, and through what seems like that very simple mechanism, I think we'll be able to organize uh, very large, very complex projects. The issue I have with this and the reason I don't see that model working is because when you start as a junior, 
you look at the person at the next level above you and you learn from them. Like being an audio engineer, I started in radio 35 years ago as the lowest sort of audio engineer there was in the building. But I would go into the recording studio next door, I'd watch the engineer work, I'd learn from him, and then when he moved on, I moved to the next step and so on. If you're going to work from home and start from that very basic level of, you know, entry-level positions, do you, do you think people can, can, can progress as well and as quickly and as much as they need to without being in a situation where you've got someone to mentor you directly? Well, I think you can have the mentorship aspect. Like if you go back to Hollywood, you know, if you're a sound engineer or a, uh, you know, a cameraman or whatever it is in Hollywood, uh, I think the same structure works, right? Like you get hired to be the junior cameraman for Spider-Man 3 and, you know, the cameraman that's doing it has 20 years of experience and you work with him for a year and he teaches you kind of his tricks and then you end up working on, you know, another, you know you're the junior cameraman or the, you know, the second most junior cameraman for uh, Superman 2 or whatever the next movie is. Um, and you just get that mentorship um, in that way. So, yeah, I do think, I agree with you that, this sort of that mentor-apprentice relationship is really valuable. Um, I don't think that's necessarily uh, – I don't think the two are mutually exclusive. I think you can get both. But you're going back a ways when you're in the studio. I mean, you're going back decades and we didn't have podcasts, blogs, YouTube, Vimeo. We didn't have any of those FaceTime facilities where you can learn from others. And – you don't, we didn't have WeWork where it's not just working from home. I mean, you can work from WeWork and have the water cooler talk around you, be cross-pollinating with different industries and different people. So I think the world's changed because back then we only had three radio stations, a newspaper and a couple of television stations. It's changed. The whole world's changed now with how you can go about learning. I mean, kids are going through university without going to lectures and learning it all from YouTube. So... I think the whole world, we got to change our frame of reference to how we take in creative inputs. Um, but the, 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 the interaction with people is still going to be critically important. It'll be an aspect you just do in a different way. Uh, Taylor, we have kept you way over time and I'm very, very appreciative of that. But to be honest with you, I only go through half of what I wanted to ask you about. So um, sometime in the future when you've done your next book, uh, we may have a chat to you and so we get you back on again, mate, because this has been terrific. This is a topic that I'm very, very fascinated by. I love your approach, philosophies, your willingness to share, your genuine nature, the authenticity of your message. So um, thanks, mate. It's been a real, real, real privilege. Yeah, pleasure's all mine. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening and uh, hope to do it again. The Mojo Radio Show. Simmer down, you noisy, screaming thing. You're a bit of a WeWork aficionado, aren't you? Yeah, it's cool. I got to say, I think it's a fantastic business. I And I like hearing guys like Taylor talk because I'm trying to piece all these bits together. What's, what's work going to look like in the next couple of years? In fact, I can't even get my head around what work will look like in 10 years' time. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? I, I, I sort of come back to that what we talked about towards the end there about mentorship, but when he makes the points that he made there, it's, um, it certainly changes the landscape. The Mojo Radio Show. Now, before we go any further, we're going to wrap the show up. Uh, I've still got this ringing in my ears. Yeah, okay. All right. I, well, you remember Lucas from Grillo Protein that we talked to last year on the Mojo Radio Show. They grow crickets up the north coast of New South Wales here in Australia and use them to produce cricket powder. Well, 
In the mail a couple of weeks ago, I actually received from Lucas a couple of cricket bars, which I thought were really nice, and I've actually enjoyed those. Um, but we always talk about organic on this show, so hang on one sec. I've started growing my own crickets. I'm going to make my own cricket protein in cricket oh, bars. God. What do you reckon? <laughs> yeah, good. Oh, dear. Okay, yeah, good. I, I would... I would Look how I, big I they are. Just, they're huge. No, no, I would just keep in touch with Lucas. I think uh, the stuff they're, they're, they're producing is uh, a fair, safer and probably tastier <laughs> option, mate. Uh, but uh, look, let, 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 let's whiteboard it. Let's put it aside for another time. <laughs> After Christmas. The Mojo Radio Show. To take us out today, you know the show is a little bit rock and it's a little bit country and mm. it's in fact a little bit opera at times. Oh, it has been, hasn't it? Yeah. I'm taking us down the country road and see what I did there? And I did. I was watching the CMA Awards from Nashville during the week and Dirk Bentley, who's a big-time country act out of Nashville, came on in front of the big crowd, all the best names in country music in, in the world, and he started singing a song by Montgomery Gentry. Now, this was odd for me because Montgomery Gentry are a current act. Why... Why would somebody else be doing a cover? And then out on the stage came Eddie Montgomery, who was part of Montgomery Gentry, who are one of my favourite country rock acts. Mm. I started to get a little curious because I thought, why is Eddie there without T-Roy? And then suddenly a large picture of T-Roy, Troy Gentry, come up on the back screen. And as the show unwound... And we did some investigation. It turns out that T-Roy was killed in a helicopter accident midway through doing their next album. And anyway, one of my favourite Montgomery Gentry songs is called Lucky Man, which is what we're going to head out with today from this show. And here's my take on Lucky Man and my tribute to T-Roy. Gratitude, as was spoken about in episode 138 of the Mojo Radio Show with Emily Fletcher, is such a powerful thing for not only creating happiness, but even even if you take 30 seconds at the end of this show to say, why am I a lucky man? Now, the lyrics of of the song, as you'll hear, talks about this country boy going, I'm a lucky man, I've got a truck that works. I've got a house on a block of land, a wife still loves me, two kids who talk to me, got a couple of bucks in a coffee can. Like it doesn't take a lot. And if you go back to what Joe DeSena said in uh, Rocktober, episode 149, he got to a point in his life where he realised through doing endurance sports, if he had water, shelter and food, he was a lucky man. And I thought, if you put these things together, it doesn't take a lot to really express gratitude. You don't even have to write it down. Just by thinking about it, you change the health, the shape and the dynamic of your own personal brain. And I thought it's such a good thing sometimes to hear a song like Lucky Man and take the time to do an audit about, you know what, even the fundamentals, water, shelter, food, if you've got those things, you're a lucky man. But today we just compare ourselves through Facebook and Insta and websites, we're always comparing ourselves to others and we never take the time to go, you know what, actually life's pretty good. So this is a tribute to T-Roy from Montgomery Gentry. It's called Lucky Man and uh, gone but not forgotten. Rest in peace, brother. We're out. Yeehaw. I have days where I hate my job This little town and the whole world too Last Sunday when my Bengals lost 
Lord, it put me in a bad mood. I have moments when I curse the rain And then complain when the sun's too hot I look around at what everyone has And I forget about all I've got But I know I'm a lucky man God's given me a pretty fair hand Got a house and a piece of land A few dollars and a coffee can Truck's still running good My ticker's ticking like they say it should I got supper in the oven A good woman's loving One more day to be my little kid's dad Lord knows I'm a lucky man Got some friends who would be here fast I could call them any time of day Got a brother who's got my back Got a mama who I swear is a saint Got a brand new rod and reel Got a full week on fish year Dad had a close call last spring It's a miracle he's still here But I know I'm a lucky man God's given me a pretty fair hand Got a and a piece of land A few dollars and a coffee can My old truck's still running good My ticker's ticking like they say it should I got supper in the oven A good woman's loving One more day to be my little kid's dad Lord knows I'm a lucky man is produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at The Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. For more about Gary, see garybertwhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production, check out voodoosound.com.au and for the right voice, realtimecasting.com. Andrew Peters speaking. See you next time.